Romans 5.1 is our text for today. This is the 24th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary, the Apostle Paul. In part, the purpose of the book of Romans was for Paul to raise money to go on a missionary journey to Spain. Missions is the heart of God. And therefore, I would challenge you today to either become a missionary or to work as hard as you can to send other missionaries. Uh, Today's message is 40 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is Peaceful, Easy Feeling. And I hope that I will not let you down. Please turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. As you're turning, please remember that God loves you. He loves you in Christ. Remember that through the rest of this sermon. Remember that for the rest of your life. Romans 5.1, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the objective truth that through Christ and in Christ we have peace with you. Lord, this is of great value for us to know. Lord, may we know it more fully today, and Lord, may we even sense it in our spirit. I pray, dear God, for anyone that is listening to my voice right now that is not at peace with you. I pray, dear Lord, that the hostility and the distance would be palpable, and I pray, dear Lord, that you would allow them, please, to be uneasy in a holy way until, Lord, they call out to you and receive mercy and peace from Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, for those of us that do know you, we want to know more about what it means to be at peace with you. And so be our teacher, dear precious Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do not have an outline for the sermon today. What I'm going to do is give you a little bit of context as to where we are in our journey through the book of Romans. Then I'm going to do the best that I can to explain verse 1 to you of chapter 5. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you nine observations concerning the subject of peace with God. As we move from Romans chapter 4 into Romans chapter 5, not only are we embarking on a new chapter, but we are embarking upon a new section of the book of Romans. In the previous section, which was chapters 1 through 4, Paul had an overarching point, and that is to prove that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from good works. And the terminology that Paul uses to describe this salvation is the righteousness of God. Now, when Paul writes that, he does not mean that God is righteous, although God certainly is righteous. And he certainly doesn't mean that we become right with God by doing what is right. That is not what he means at all. In fact, it doesn't even mean that God commands us to be righteous in our day-to-day lives, although he does command us to do that. But that's not what Paul means when he uses the phrase, the righteousness of God. What he means is this, that God declares us righteous when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Contrary to popular belief and contrary to the beliefs of all other religions of the world, we are not, N-O-T, not, made right with God by doing what is right. 
We are made right with God by believing in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Believing what? Believing that God the Father set Jesus forward as a propitiation. That's just a fancy word for saying an appeasement of his wrath, an atoning sacrifice, that God put Jesus forward to the cross as an atoning sacrifice to pay for our sins. Did it work when God did it? Yes, it did. Absolutely. We know this for sure. And the way that we know this is that God raised Jesus from the dead. The last verse in chapter 4, which is the last verse in the first section of the book of Romans, says that he was delivered up for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. The last English word that you will read at the end of chapter 4 is the word justification. Therefore, when we believe in Jesus, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. That is what Paul means by the righteousness of God. We are justified by faith. That's the bottom line argument of chapters 1 through 4. And now we're moving into the next section, which is chapters 5 through 8. And what Paul is going to do in this section is he's going to spell out the benefits of being saved. There are many benefits, but the overarching benefit, which appears, in my opinion, as the highest summit in the landscape of these four chapters, is that of hope. Hope of glory. Hope of glorification. Hope of heaven. Hope, I think, is the overarching theme of chapters 5 through 8. So if I can simplify it for you, Chapters 1 through 4, Paul says, this is salvation. And in chapter five through, chapters 5 through 8, Paul says, here's what happens between the time I get saved and the time I arrive in heaven. In other words, I'm going to heaven, but I'm not there yet. What truths can be said about me in the now, in my current Christian life? Chapters 5 through 8 explain that. And it's important that we have this information contained in chapters 5 through 8 about our current status because we are people who tend to live by our feelings. We should be living by what we know, K-N-O-W, know to be true based upon Scripture, but we often live based upon our feelings. As we study chapters 5 through 8, we will learn more and more about what our status is before God as Christians. Again, it is something which is not subjective and it is not something that changes based upon our feelings. Think of it this way. When one is in the embryonic stages of a potential romantic relationship, there's always going to be a lot of speculation in the privacy of our mind of whether or not this other person loves us. Does she love me? Does she not? And so you're always thinking, and, and, and that answer will change from date to date. I think she likes me. Nope, I'm pretty sure she doesn't. What did she mean by that lingering handshake? I'm picking up mixed signals. I think she likes someone else. No, I'm picking up good vibrations. And it's back and forth. It's always in a state of flux. Now, this is why the only way that you can really tell whether or not that other person loves you 
is to actually get a daisy and go through it and say, she loves me, she loves me not. It's going to change based upon how many petals are on the flower. Well, concerning our relationship with God, it doesn't change regardless of how we feel. What we need is a firm, fixed, immovable conviction concerning what God thinks of us, and that conviction needs to be based upon the firm, fixed, immovable truths of Holy Scripture, the Bible, and not based upon our feelings. Feelings are often referred to or spoken of in terms of what we call assurance of salvation. Now, assurance of salvation and salvation are not the same thing. Uh, There are some people who are very confident that they are saved, but they are deceived, and they are going to find out in the final day that they were deceived. Matthew 7, 23, they are going to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Uh, There are other people who are plagued with doubts all the time. They never receive an assurance of salvation, but yet, in reality, their names are in the book of life. Are they going to make it to heaven? Absolutely, because the weakest faith in a strong bridge will get you across. So assurance is not equivalent to salvation. However, I believe that it is essential for us to have an assurance of salvation if we are going to grow spiritually. And God does not want to leave you in the dark. God does not want you to have doubts about your status before him. Uh, He desires that we who are saved would have an assurance of salvation. And that assurance is spelled out in clear terms in Romans chapters 5 through 8. And John says it in his epistle, 1 John 5, 13. He writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, unfortunately, like our romantic speculations, sometimes our feelings rather than scripture dictate how we view God's opinion of us. If you will read and study Romans chapters 5 through 8, you will receive a firm conviction and assurance of hope. Every week, I stand in front of you and I tell you that God loves you. Well, If you want to know what it means for God to love you, you're going to see it no better in any place in Scripture than in Romans chapters 5 through 8. And today, what I want to do is I want to demonstrate one of those benefits, and it comes in the very first verse of this section, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, and that benefit is peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Chapter 5 starts off with a very weighty therefore statement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now that is the sum and substance of chapters 1 through 4 of Romans. In fact, that is the sum and substance of all that is salvation. And we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are justified in the sight of God. What is justification or what does it mean to be justified? Well, there are two parts to it. On the one hand, Jesus died for our sins on the cross and washed them away permanently. He washed all of them away permanently. And since they have all been washed away or purged by the death of Christ, 
They, therefore, in reality, no longer exist in the record book of heaven. They no longer exist in the mind of God. Based upon the death of Christ, all of our sins are forever gone. The second part of justification is that the righteous record of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. In other words, every good thing that he ever did, whether it was obedience or whether it was the fulfillment of the law, every way in which he pleased the Father gets put on our record such that when God evaluates me, his evaluation is identical to that of his assessment of Jesus. God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. The gospel is of first importance. And how is this transaction completed? Well, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 reiterates what was spelled out in detail in Romans 1 through 4, and that is, it is accomplished by faith. We are justified by faith. Not by works, not by rituals, not by church attendance, not by sacrifice, not by tears, not by penance, not by benevolence, but by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. Faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing is equal to salvation, is equal to justification. Which begs the question, have you yourself placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for you? If you have, then all of the benefits that are spelled out in chapters 5 through 8 are yours, and they are yours in full. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, my question to you is, why not? And I even have a better question for you. Why not today? And I have even a better question for you, and that is, why not right now? Why not stop listening to what I am saying right now? And in your heart and in your mind, cry out to Jesus Christ and ask him to save you right now. Why would you not want to do that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? If not, why not? Why not right now? So that is the review of chapters 1 through 4 in the opening statement of chapter 5, verse 1, which brings us to the practical and logical conclusion of the therefore, and that is, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that I am about to say about peace with God is based upon the assumption that you already have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is making that same assumption. If you are not saved, most of what I'm going to say, in fact, I would even say that all of what I am about to say for the remainder of the sermon does not apply to you. What I am doing today is I am talking to Christians about what it means for us to be at peace with God. I want you to notice the word Lord. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to use this word Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in these four chapters in order to punctuate his main points. I find it very interesting that coming right out of the gates, in chapter 5, verse 1, he mentions Jesus Christ our Lord 
And then in the last verse of every chapter, he uses this same formula, including the word Lord, to describe Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Let's do a quick Bible study. Look at the final verse of chapter 5, 521. It speaks about eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The last verse in chapter 6, 623. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last verse in chapter 7. Thanks be to God through our through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the final verse in chapter 8, which is the final verse in the section, says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Jesus means God saves. The word Lord, in simple terms, means that he is the boss and that he is in charge and that he has the power and that he has the authority. So when we think about all of the spiritual blessings which we are going to enjoy under this umbrella of hope in chapters 5 through 8, they are promised to us from someone who has authority and he is the Lord. They are carried out through the Lord who has the power and the authority. Let's just say that you are working hard, but you're not making enough money. And you go to your manager and you say, I think I'm doing a good job for you. Can I get a raise? And the manager says, well, I'll see what I can do. You are a pretty good employee. Let me go to the owner of the company and I'll put in a good word for you. Should you have assurance at that point? Not really, because you don't know what the owner is going to say. It is only when the owner himself says to you directly, you have the raise, then you know that the Lord of the company has given you that raise. Likewise, the Lord of the universe, Christ Jesus, said, through me, you have peace. You have peace with God. And apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord, we do not have peace with God. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are in a state of war with God. You see, God is not neutral about anyone or anything. Matthew Henry, who died in the year 1714, said this, God is either your worst enemy or your best friend. And that is true. Uh, perhaps the reason why we who are saved do not value peace with God as much as we should is because we are not aware of or we have forgotten the fact that we were actually at war with God and there was an hostility which existed from Holy God toward us prior to the time when we were saved. When we say the word saved, what does that even mean? Well, R.C. Sproul, I think, sums it up best in his book in from 2010. And the title of the book is simply, Saved From What? Saved From What? And Sproul concludes, and I think he's 100% correct, God saved us from himself. God saved us from his own hot, holy wrath. God saved us from God. Please don't buy the false cliche that God hates the sin but yet loves the sinner. 
When in reality, the Bible, the Word of God says that God hates sinners. And not just the sin that they commit, but He hates sinners. Psalm 5.5, speaking of the Lord, says, You hate all evildoers. Listen again to this quote from Matthew Henry. It is sin that breeds the quarrel between us and God. It creates not only estrangement, but an enmity. Now, we don't use that word enmity very much. Uh, enmity is just a fancy way of saying a fixed hatred or a deep-seated or deep-rooted hatred. And, and so Matthew Henry says correctly, when, when we're talking about our relationship with God and we are in an unsaved state, it's not just that there is a distance, it's not just that there is an estrangement, but there is also an enmity between God and ourselves. There is a fixed hatred there. Matthew Henry goes on, the holy righteous God cannot in honor be at peace with a sinner while he continues under the guilt of sin. Justification takes away the guilt and so makes the way for peace. End quote. And do you understand that? Peace with God is amazing in light of the fact that we used to be his enemies. It's, it's not just that, that, that God, God hates the unconverted. But the fact of the matter is, we hated him too. This is what Romans 8, 7 says. For the mind that is set on the flesh, uh, that is the person who is unsaved and he thinks and acts and believes like an unsaved person, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now you might be listening to this and say, Pastor, that simply is not true. I, I may not be saved, I may not be born again, I may not love God, but I certainly don't hate him. In fact, truth be told, I, I don't really think about him that much at all. He's, he's more or less irrelevant to me. Well, let me make my argument that you, prior to being saved, actually do hate God. First of all, let's start with the fact that he created you, and since he created you, he has a right to your life. He sustains you, and by sustains you, I mean literally every breath that you are taking is a free gift that he is giving you. You are breathing his air. That heart in your chest, it's beating because he keeps it going. He made you, he takes care of you, and he demands devotion and love and obedience, and he is certainly worthy of it. But when we dismiss him as irrelevant or defy him as being insignificant or when we detest him as being intrusive, we have declared war against God. I think this is seen best when we try to have a conversation with someone that is not a Christian. And what they will do is either A, they will artfully change the subject very quickly. They will dismiss themselves from you and they will never be in your presence again if they can help it. Or if they are a little bit aggressive, in other words, if they are from New York, what they will do is they will come back at you with, I don't want to talk to you about that because religion is a private and a personal matter, which it, that is not true. It is indeed personal, but it is not private. But that's a side point. The point is they will do whatever they can not to take the direction in the in uh, the subjects of God or Jesus or the Bible or sin 
or salvation. They will not do that. Why? Because they are very uncomfortable with the concept of God. Another example of this is when we know the difference between right and wrong, whether it is you're hearing it from a preacher, whether you're reading it in the Bible, or whether you've been taught through social norms, or just the fact that you're not an animal and that you have a conscience and you know that there is something which is right, you know which is something which is wrong, you want to do that thing which is wrong, what do you do when you're faced with that? You basically say to God, I don't want to obey your rules. Your rules are not my rules. In fact, I wish those rules were not there. Well, when you say that, you're essentially saying to God, I wish you weren't there. I wish you would shut up. I wish you would leave me alone. We are at war with God. We have picked a fight with God when we are sinning, and this goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam picked a fight with God and ate the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. Every time that we sin against God, we are aligning ourselves with Adam. We are applauding Adam. We are sinners. And, and, and please don't view the wrath of God against sinners as something which He initiated. Also, please don't view our peace with God is something which we initiated. Because the Bible says there, there is none that seeks after God. There has never been a man, nor will there ever be a man, who said, I'm in trouble with God. How can I repair the relationship? No, uh, there is a separation. There is a distance. There is hostility and war. And we are content with that. And if we are to be saved, if we are to be rescued, he is the one that has to come after us. And thankfully, he did. Why does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3? You know Ephesians chapter 2. It is the chapter where it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Prior to that, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says this of us in our unconverted condition, that we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Well, at this point, if you're listening, you might be saying to yourself, wow, this is the worst sermon on peace that I've ever heard. This, I mean, this is such a downer. This is so negative. I mean, Pastor Moore, you said that you were going to speak to us about all of the blessings in chapters 5 through 8, and one of them is peace. But so far, so far, all we've established is that God hates the unsaved, and they are at war with him, and that they hate him. Well, let me explain why I have belabored the point of the war before I get to the peace. And that is, I believe that it is essential for us to grasp that because modern evangelicalism or the Christian church in 2023 speaks about peace with God and the love of God as nothing more than something which is sentimental or experiential or something which is to be taken for granted. It is very syrupy and scriptureless and man-centered, which begs the question, does K-Love exist because sermons are weak or are sermons weak because pastors are listening to K-Love? It's the chicken or the egg. Which one came first? But one is feeding into the other. In reality, in reality, what makes peace with God so sweet 
is the actual biblical gospel, which starts off with the fact that you are bad and God knows that you are bad and you are at war with him. And he has done something to make peace with you. This is the value of biblical peace. What difference does it make to be at peace with God if there previously was no hostility? Let me illustrate it in two ways. You know that person that you are, you are completely indifferent about them. I mean, they're almost invisible to you. What little you do know about them, you find them to be somewhat annoying, but you have nothing against them. And as far as you know, they have nothing against you. They're just sort of a non-entity. But, but if you had your druthers, you wouldn't want to, to spend time with them. They're just sort of that person that's just side of sort of out there and all of a sudden one day this person comes to you and says hey I just want to make sure that everything is good between us I, I want to reconcile with you I, I just want to make sure that, the, the, that there's no hostility between us and you say yeah sure everything's fine thank you yeah that's nice okay we're good we are now at peace with one another we are reconciled with one another well what is the value of that peace well, it's not very much because there wasn't really any hostility to speak of at the beginning. I mean, I suppose it's better to be at peace with them than not be at peace with them, but it's not that much of a deal. But let's imagine, and here's the second illustration, that for some strange reason, the United States and all of her armed forces declare war on Tuvalu. Tuvalu. Uh, it's an independent island nation, which is about 5,000 miles from California. It is halfway between Hawaii and Australia. The total population of Tuvalu is 11,312. And let's say that the Big Eagle gets angry with Tuvalu and declares war. And Joe Biden says, we are coming after you. Our ships are sailing toward you right now. Our jets have been sent in your direction. We are going to put you in the sea. You are finished. Now, the fear that would come upon those people, knowing that they are now at war with the United States of America, would be immense. And let's just say for the sake of argument that they have an ambassador and their ambassador meets with one of our ambassadors and some sort of peace treaty is worked out and all of a sudden Joe Biden says, I recant. I'm not going to do it. In fact, I am at peace with you now, Tuvalu. I am not going to bomb you. Can you imagine how those 11,000 people are going to rejoice because they were on the verge of extinction and now they are at peace with the United States of America. And there's going to be, this is going to be a big deal to the Tuvalians. Well, when we think about our peace with God, we need to accentuate the word God. He is more powerful than Uncle Sam and the gulf between us is immeasurably vast. And, and the, the anger and the wrath which he had for us in our state before Christ is immeasurable. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, we not only have a cessation of war, 
but we actually have peace with God. You see, I think understanding the holiness and the majesty and the power of God along with His wrath, which once justifiably existed between us because of our sin, see Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, because of our sin, is essential because if we are going to begin to grasp what it means to have peace with God, we have to understand that previously there was a big war which was going on. Peace with God is bigger and a much bigger deal than Caleb makes of it because of who God is and because of who we are. And so when we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God, then peace sort of looks like, peace with God sort of looks like a, a, a footbridge going across a dried up creek. I mean, it's just not that big of a deal. When in reality, peace with God is more like a 16-lane highway built from California to Tuvalu for 5,000 miles, only in reality, the gulf between God and ourselves is greater. And how is this bridged? It is bridged through righteousness. In Isaiah 32, 17, it says, the effect of righteousness will be peace. It is the righteous life of Jesus Christ which is credited to our account and only through that imputation or that crediting to our account that we have actual peace with God. So I have given you the context of Romans 5 through 8. I have explained this verse now what I would like to do is I would like to make nine observations about peace with God. Number one is this. Peace was a messianic expectation of the Jews. How are we going to know when the Messiah gets here? Well, because he is going to bring peace. Based upon the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews believed that the Christ or the Messiah would be one who would usher in the reign of peace. Uh, perhaps they took this from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The child is born. The son is given. We're, we're, we're going to hear this over and over again in December at Christmas time. And what will be one of the names of the Messiah who will come? It is the Prince of Peace. Amen. But their concept of peace was not correct. I remember when I was a freshman at the University of Pittsburgh, I was trying to share the gospel with a young Jewish girl. I tried to point her to Jesus and to convince her that Jesus was the Messiah. And very politely, she said to me, we do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, for when Messiah comes, he will bring peace on earth. And since there is no peace on earth, therefore he could not be the Messiah. And I would agree with her if what God intended by that peace was some sort of a military or political or social peace. I mean, even look at what's going on even today, even right now in Israel. You need to know this. If the Lord doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, 10,000 years from now, there will still be wars which will be happening on this sin-cursed planet. The purpose of the Prince of Peace in bringing peace was not to bring some sort of a military or political peace, but it was peace with God 
through his substitutionary death. Uh, Point being here that God not only initiated and accomplished peace with God for us, but he also promised it and prophesied it and predicted it that it would come through the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Here's a second observation, and that is that it is quite possible that Paul may have been contrasting Lord Caesar with Lord Jesus in this phrase. Remember that this letter was written to the Romans, and the Romans lived in Rome, and Rome was the capital of the world, and Caesar was the leader of Rome, and Caesar prided himself in being the overseer of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. What was the Pax Romana? Well, it was sort of a synthetic substitution for real peace, where Rome said to the rest of the world, we're going to play nice from now on. Uh, there's not going to be any more skirmishes. We're not going to tolerate any riots. Uh, you're going to listen to what we have to say. You're going to be at peace with one another. Um, and this lasted from 27 BC until AD 180. But what Rome would do in order to bring about this peace is they would exercise muscle and intimidation. And they're telling the world to play nice. Now, if you didn't play nice, you certainly would not experience peace from them. Uh, they would actually crucify you. And, and, and the world would look at this and say, well, isn't this a wonderful peace? Well, it really was not peace. And so what Paul might have been doing here is, is, is contrasting the imposed, fabricated peace of Lord Caesar, which was a substitute for real peace, with actual peace, which came from Lord Jesus. Observation number three, peace with God is not just a cessation of hostility. Now, it is true that peace with God is a cessation of hostility, but it's not God simply saying, I don't hate you anymore. Let's just say you had an employee who was stealing from you in your business. You caught them. You caught them on videotape. It it was clear. And instead of calling the police, you simply fired them. You said, you're, you're, you're done. Get out of here. I'm not going to call the cops on you. Get out of here. I don't want to see you ever again. You didn't exercise your right to justice. That is not a good illustration of what it means to be at peace with God. Because God, in making peace with us, did not merely remove his wrath, but he extended his love to us and adopted us. Uh, Let's go back to the illustration. Here's what gospel peace means. Gospel peace means that this person keeps their job, and not only do they keep their job, but they are forgiven of their debt. And not only are they forgiven of their debt, but they get a raise. Not only do they get a raise, but the boss takes this person home and adopts him. Not only does the boss adopt this person, but he writes this person into his will. That's what it means to be at peace with God. It's not God saying, okay, I'm calling off the dogs. My wrath is no longer on you. It's God saying, I'm calling off the dogs. My wrath is no longer upon you. And I am reaching out to you and loving you and bringing you into my family. And I am adopting you. It means much more than a cessation of hostility. It's great to know that God isn't mad at me anymore. But it's much more than that. God loves you. Number four, 
Peace with God is instantaneous when we believe in Jesus. Peace with God happens immediately when we believe in Jesus. Peace with God is not a process that is earned over time. Let's go back to the employee-boss relationship. The boss catches the person stealing. He chooses to forgive the person. And understandably, in a human relationship, what the boss is going to do is to say, all right, you're going to keep your job. I'll let you pay back the money. But going forward, I am going to be cautious with you, and I'm going to allow you to earn trust over time by good behavior. That is not the gospel at all. When the Bible says that we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it means that when we believe we are joined to Christ and we are instantaneously at peace with God. This morning we sang the hymn, To God Be the Glory. And in that is the phrase, the vilest offender that truly believes that moment, that moment, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. So you do not have to work to earn it. You who have your faith placed in Jesus Christ are immediately at peace with God. Trust in Jesus and your status will change instantly. You will go from enemy to friend instantly. Observation number five. Peace with God never varies. It does not come in degrees. It is not heightened when we are obedient, and it is not diminished when we as Christians are disobedient. It is not different from one person to another. It is not a better peace for better Christians and a worse peace for worse Christians. Peace with God is like being pregnant. You either is or you ain't, and there's no in-between. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality with God. Remember what Matthew Henry said, God is either your worst enemy or he is your best friend. You see, in our relationships with one another, peace is always in a state of flux. The people who used to be our friends now have become our enemies. The people who used to be our enemies are now our friends. It is hard for me to believe during World War II that actually Stalin and FDR were friends. And by that, I don't mean that they were chummy with one another, but Russia was our buddy in World War II. And, and, and now look at the situation. We are no longer the best of friends. In human relationships, peace is always in flux, but forever and all eternity, you will be at peace with God and that will never be altered or threatened or jeopardized or terminated permanent, unending peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. Peace with God, which is what I've been preaching about this morning, is a status which never changes. The peace of God is a an experience. It is subjective and it changes all the time. 
Paul tells us concerning the subject of anxiety and prayer in Philippians chapter 4 that we are to be praying with thanksgiving. And when this happens, Paul says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, I hate to call the peace of God an emotion or a feeling, but I don't have a good enough vocabulary to call it anything else. I think that that is actually pretty accurate. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are immediately at peace with God. However, the peace of God, which is subjective, will change depending on the circumstances. Let me give you an example of this. When we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us and there is an absence of the peace of God. Uh, This week, I committed a a sin. I was with, uh, I I committed more than one sin. I, I committed countless, innumerable sins, but I'm referring to one specific sin. I was with a pastor this week and we were talking about some other pastors and and in an attempt to be humorous uh, i said something which was derogatory uh, true true nonetheless and funny i might add true and funny but that's irrelevant about another pastor uh, i i said something which was uh which was mean which was cruel um that other pastor was not there to defend himself uh, I should not have said what I said, even if it was true, even if it was funny. And, and immediately I sense an absence of the peace of God. And I try to ward off the Holy Spirit by saying, Hey, you know, I'm a comedian. Let me, you know, let me, I got to have my shtick here. But the Holy Spirit doesn't let me go to the point where I had to stop and interrupt that other pastor when he was talking and say, I just have to say something to you right now. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. I sinned against our brother by talking about him behind his back. That was wrong. That was sinful. And I ask God to forgive me and I ask you please to forgive me. Why did I do that? Was I at peace with God through that entire time? Yes, I was at peace with God. I will eternally be at peace with God. That is unchanging. That is instantaneous. That does not vary. It is based upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is based upon justification. However, I was not experiencing the peace of God because sin had interrupted that. And God is so kind to give us His Spirit to convict us of sin so that we repent, so that we can experience the peace of God. The lack of peace from God is a kind gift that causes us to repent. Let me give you another example of how this works. There are times in our lives when we need to make decisions. And it's not spelled out in the Bible who you should marry or where you should work or where you should live. You just have to make decisions. You read the principles in Scripture, but 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 the specifics are not spelled out. So how do we know what we're supposed to do? Well, we pray. And sometimes everything can look good on paper. I mean, this all lines up. You, you make a column, pros, cons. The pros outweigh the cons. However, 
you don't go through with it. And the reason you don't go through with it is because God has not given you peace in your heart. Now, let me just be clear that our thoughts and our emotions are subject to being wrong. We are not fallible. In fact, our thoughts and emotions are, 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 we are not infallible. Our thoughts and emotions are very fallible. At the same time, I want to say that God uses peace or the lack thereof to guide us. I remember when I was getting ready to graduate from college and I went to my pastor at the time and I, I was contemplating whether or not I should go into the ministry. And he said, well, pray about it and you'll know whether you should because God will give you peace or he won't. And at the time I thought to myself, this is not helpful at all. But you know what? He was right. And over the past 40 years, he has been proven to be right. Do you want to know whether or not you should do something? Pray about it, and God will often accompany that decision with peace or the lack thereof. But that's not my point. My point is that peace with God and the peace of God are not the same thing. You see, it is very possible to be at peace with God, in other words, justified and saved, and yet at the same time not experience the peace of God. However, since the fruit of the Spirit is peace, and I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth now, this, this is just based upon the fact that you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is peace, I would say I would be worried if I were you if I never experienced the peace of God and yet claimed to be at peace with God. The reason I say that is because Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so I ask you, those of you who claim to be at peace with God, do you experientially know the peace of God that passes all understanding? John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, was sent as a missionary from England to Georgia. And as he's in the boat crossing over the Atlantic in 1736, a big storm hits the boat and he thinks that he's going to die. And everybody on the boat is frantic except for this group of Moravians, people who are from what is now the Czech Republic. And as the storm was hitting the boat, these Moravians were having their worship service, and they didn't stop having their worship service. They just had it straight through the storm. After it was over, Wesley went up to them, and he said, were you not afraid? He said, no, thank God we were not. Were your children or your women afraid? No, they were not. At the time, Wesley was not saved. He was a missionary, but he wasn't saved yet. He does not get saved until... May of 1738. And for the two and a half years between that storm and the time he got saved, he could not get the faces of the Moravians out of his mind. Why do they have something that I do not have? Where did that peace come from? The peace came from God. You see, just because peace with God and the peace of God are different doesn't mean that they are mutually exclusive. In fact, I think it stands to reason that one who is at peace with God objectively would experience his peace in 
their heart subjectively since the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And so I ask, do you experience the peace of God? Number seven, we must be at peace with one another. In my initial notes here, I wrote the word should, and then I scratched it out and I wrote the word must. We must be at peace with one another. And when I say one another, I mean with fellow Christians, particularly those who are covenanted members of this church. I'm a child of God and so are you. And so we ought to be at peace with one another. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but let me just say something about how we should be at peace with people who are unsaved in the world. We are commanded to attempt to be at peace with them. Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it's not possible, but if it is possible and it depends on you, you be a peaceful person. As a Christian, you should be a good neighbor, a good citizen, a good teammate, a good co-worker, a good son or daughter, a good commuter in and out of the city. As a Christian, you should not be a jerk. You should not agitate people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. You are not saved by being nice, but being saved ought to make you nice. And so be nice because you're living in a wicked world. And if you're to be salt and light, you've got to be nice. But that's a side point. My point here is that we, in our relationships with fellow Christians, must be at peace with one another. Now, I will grant you, that is not what Romans 5.1 says. I deduced it from the text, but here is my logic, here is my deduction. If God is my Father, and He paid for my peace with the blood of His Son, and if God is your Father, and if He paid for your peace with that same blood from His same Son, is it not incongruent that I would be at war with you or you with me? We are definitely going to disagree with one another, and we sure are going to irritate one another. But that is not what should characterize our relationships. What should characterize our relationships based upon the peace that we have with God is love for one another. Because generally speaking, we have so much more in common than we have to fight about. And the things which we have in common are so much more important than the things which would divide us. You see, the commonality which unites us should cause us to be, I'm sorry, must, must cause us to be at peace with one another and to love one another. And you know where this is especially true? It is especially true in Christian marriages. Not only are you both saved, not only are you both indwelt by the same Spirit, not only are you both adopted by the same Father, but you have been joined together by God Himself. You are one flesh. And so the, the, this, the theological, positional reality of peace with God, yes, that is important. But if you can't cause that to translate into a peaceful marriage and a joyful home, then I don't think that you really understand theologically what it means to be at peace with God. 
Your theology concerning justification, producing peace with God, is actually pretty hollow if you can't translate that into getting along with your spouse or your fellow church member. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we can accurately articulate the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. No, that's not what it says. John says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we have love for the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. It's completely incongruent to say, I am happy to be at peace with God, but yet be at war or estranged from one of my fellow Christians or church members. Let's say that you hated my daughter, Madison, but that you loved me. And you told me that you loved me and you said, I want to come to your house and I want to spend time with you. I love you, but I hate her. To which I will say to you, no can do. Daryl Hall and John Oates, no can do. If you hate her, you hate me. Peace with God by definition means that we will strive to be at peace with God's children. Number eight, become a missionary. Become a missionary. Why? Because the only way that people can be at peace with God is through Jesus Christ, and they cannot be at peace with Him unless they have heard His gospel. And a large portion of the world's population has never heard of Jesus Christ. And so, if these people are to be at peace with God, they need to hear the gospel. Perhaps God is calling you to leave here and to go there. Become a missionary. And number nine, and most importantly, Christ is our peace. Colossians 1.20, speaking of God, what was he doing? He was making peace through the blood of his cross, that is Christ's cross. Even more direct is Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Now, although it is true, and this is what I've been speaking about the entire sermon, that peace is a status or a state between ourselves and God, uh, we are at peace with God, it is important to know why we are at peace with God. And the answer is Jesus. Uh, it is our union with Him. Uh, peace is our state or our status, but, but, but more so, peace is a person and that person is Jesus himself. It's, yes, important to know what he did for me, but it is also important to know who he is and to love him. Uh, being aware of what he has done, that, that, that's essential because the Bible tells us what he has done. But I ask, do you love Jesus Christ himself? For he is our peace. I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm sure that this theologically breaks down in some ways because there will be some inconsistencies here. But I think that in part, this can help you to understand what I mean when I say he himself is our peace. I'm about five or six years old. I had done something, I don't remember specifically what, because I was always doing something, but I had done something to irritate uh, my neighborhood friends. They were all two years older than me and bigger than me, David Bird, Tom Schramm, and Jimmy Wyckoff. Uh, 
uh, all three of them could beat me up. And from time to time, one or a couple of them would do that. But on this particular occasion, and, and by the way, I was really fast. I, I was not a good kid, but I was really fast. My father used to say, it's a poor pair of legs that'll let the body take a beating. And, and I can remember one day irritating these three guys, running out of David Bird's yard, running down the alley, running into my backyard, past the tree, across the yard. And as I am running across the yard, I am screaming for my mother. She comes walking out the back door of the house. And as she does, I run up and I embrace her and I grab her. She then shoes away these three older kids and she tells them to get lost. Now, this was over half a century ago, but it is a vivid memory in my mind. I remember being out of breath, looking at her and saying to myself, this is the thought that consumed me in a very powerful way as a five or six year old, thinking to myself, you are the most beautiful woman in all the world. And I love you with all my heart. And at that moment, it was not what she had done for me, but it was my mother herself. Sometimes I think we get so caught up in the forensic, legal, theological doctrines of redemption accomplished and applied that we forget and we lose sight of the fact that what this is all about is Jesus himself. Our friend, Jesus our helper, Jesus our Lord, Jesus our peace. I want you to know doctrine. But I need for you to know Christ Jesus himself. You know, every week I stand up and I tell you that God loves you. What I mean by that is that God loves you in Christ. Yes, Jesus loves me. God loves me. Do you know Jesus himself as your peace? He himself is our peace. Do you know him? May God grant you peace in Christ. All right. 118 down, 315 to go, which means what? Oh, it means we're getting there. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray first of all and give you thanks and praise. I would give you, Lord, adoration because you initiated and completed our salvation. And therefore, to God be all the glory. To God be all the praise. Thank you for bringing about a state of peace through Jesus Christ. Lord, I would now pray that we would realize this and we would live in light of this peace which we enjoy. And I would pray for the person right now who has not yet come into a peaceful relationship with you. I pray that you would regenerate this one, cause them, Lord, to cry out to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that perhaps someone who walked into this building as your enemy will walk out as your friend. And so, Lord, may thy will be done. We thank you for the peace of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. In his name we pray, amen.